so I come back to San Diego and I'm continuing my psychology studies and I'm, I'm part of a, within the, the psychology department, there's a holistic massage program that is really a mystery school disguised as a massage school. And it's, it's a direct roots from Esalen Institute and the Eureka Institute. And um, it was an ama- a wonderful program. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Stay Safe has increasingly become an email sign-off, a good wish from the kind tech support person, or as a goodbye from the teller at the bank. It might have begun during the plague years. I remember saying it myself. It might be the anthem of a generation, like have a good day was the thing to say in the 70s. When was the last time you heard that? Or, depending on your age, did you ever hear someone say that? Stay safe. I know, people mean well when they say this. But I found it's not the best advice if you're looking to bust up any stagnated situation or mix up the volatile ingredients for creating any kind of magic worth living into. I can't think of a single love affair that started off with safe. Any book that stretched the imagination to break the constraints of comfort, any job that was ulcerative, lucrative, challenging, and demanded a learning curve that was not unlike learning to walk or acquire a language. Think of the last thing you did that left you feeling enlivened and connected and made you wonder, how did I do that? I'll bet it was not because you were playing it safe. Stay safe sounds like a nice thing to say. It sounds like others have your best interest in mind. But do they? Just what does staying safe serve? What if staying safe serves the status quo, keeps you from rocking the boat, has you being a good citizen by not questioning authority? Trading the feeling of safety for the discomfort of uncertain outcomes sounds good. However, it will in time leak away your capacity for courage and fortitude. There's nothing safe about how seeds crack and dissolve protective barriers and send an inquiring root down into the dark unknown. Safety is the last thing a first kiss has in mind. It's the least of concerns when deciding to ditch what's not been working for so long that you've grown immune to your own excuses. Staying safe is the opposite of making a difference. It's a spell cast by that part of you that's cowardly, the part of you perhaps not happy to stand up for your limits, but at least content. I'm trying to think of any mythic gods that represent safety, and I can't think of a one. There are plenty, however, who offer some kind of trouble that life could be bigger and with more capacity. I'm not suggesting recklessness, although it might at times have its place. It's more that transformation of any kind requires the current form to break. Like a glimpse of a potential future changes how risk is assessed, how trusting yourself can be frightening to others, and that leaving the safety of the pack is both liberating and terrifying. Have you noticed that false sense of safety that comes with blending in and the threat of judgment that accompanies standing out. Staying safe. Safe from what? Death? The judgment of others? Financial ruin? 
social ostracization? Just what dragons do you draw at the edge of your map of the known? Staying safe? It's not what humans do. It's when uncertainty is chosen, that makes for stories worth retelling. That makes for change that liberates thought and frees the heart. Safety has its place, like a sheltered harbor for a boat, but boats aren't built for harbors, and safety is not what invigorates the spirit. When I was considering a walk down the path of acupuncture, I could see that it could lead to having a practice, not a job, but a practice, because in the 90s, there were no jobs for acupuncture. But when the guest of today's show, Rick Gold, started down the path of acupuncture, there was no telling where that might lead, because there were no paths to anything when you started down that road in the 70s. One of the wonderful things about being young, at least as I remember it, is that it didn't matter where a path took me. What mattered was how it felt to have my feet on it. Rick's inquisitiveness and, beyond that, willingness to put himself in it, it took him places. Still does, too. We will be getting into all of that in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. 
learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. This is John Scott. I'm the founder of Golden Flower Chinese Herbs. I'm grateful for this conversation. I hope you all are having a great day. And I'm hoping our conversation will stimulate your thinking. You know, in our clinics, we see patients of all ages, occupations, gender, and medical challenges. Today, I want to talk about patients that may report feeling burnout, or this could be described as like a deep depletion of essence. We know that with the kidney being the root of yin and yang, this is where the deepest chi is and where that depletion um, lies. Of course, lifestyle changes are necessary. There could be substance abuse issues, poor dietary habits, poor sleep habits, stress management must all be implemented. And of course, herbal medicine is called for depending on the pattern presentation. But today I wanna to talk about a particular acupuncture strategy for kidney depletion. You know, we. There's a number of possible acupuncture strategies. There's five-phase treatments using tonification or yuan source point on the kidney channel. There are Chinese and Korean four-needle treatments. Uh, there are the front mu and back shoe points that one can treat. There are direct, indirect treatment strategies from various traditions. Now, let's look at a different possibility. How do we or can we facilitate qi building at the deepest Shaoyan level? Now, qi must be transformed from something into something. Now, the location where this transformation happens is in the middle burner. 
Uh, we talk about the spleen, stomach, and the intestines. You know, that's where this happens. So the digestive system is where what comes from the outside, what is not us, is transformed into us. And of course, there is a yin and yang aspect to this function. The yang aspect is where the active transformation process happens. Um, I mean, because, well, we know yin is not really about transformation, it's about substance. So the uh, yang ming channels of the stomach and large intestine, this is the yang aspect of that transformation that we're talking about. Let me back up just a second. At um, Well, now it's been a number of years ago, I had a particular patient who was recovering from use of amphetamines. Her essence was severely depleted. I was sort of scratching my chin, like, how best to approach rebuilding her essence? And this line of thinking occurred to me. So I needled the upper and lower hussy points on the Yang Ming channels. So Susan Li, stomach 36, is the lower hussy point of the stomach. Shangju Shu, stomach 37, is the lower hussy point of the large intestine channel. Now, Qiu Qi, Qiu Qi is a large intestine 11, is the upper hussy point of the large intestine and the earth point. Now, Shao San Li, large intestine 10, is considered the upper hussy point on the stomach channel. Uh, I was pleased to see an immediate positive change in her pulse. Uh, one may, of course, include other points, and I have used this point combination uh, on other kidney-depleted patients uh, with very encouraging results. So when you're working with people that are depleted, maybe aged or elderly or more mature, and uh, you want to support them in a way that will really be uh, effective, consider this treatment strategy. Uh, I've, I've found it to be really elegant and, and effective. Thank you for, for listening. This is John Scott. I'm the founder of Golden Flower Chinese Herbs. And we have a, a number of really wonderful formulas for supporting kidney essence. Uh, we have our CFG formula is particularly wonderful when you have spleen and stomach issues and kidney, spleen, yang deficiency issues. So in this formula, we omitted this, the botanicals that are cloying and may be difficult to digest for these folks. And of course, we have formulas like Romania 6, Leo D1-1, and uh, Essential Yang, which is our version of Biway D1-1, Romania 8, and a number of other great kidney formulas, depending on your presentation. Uh, Ming Mu is wonderful if you have uh, somebody that has visual weakness. And you can find us on the internet at www.gfcherbs.com. Rick Gold. Welcome to Geological. Thanks so very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I don't know. We haven't started the conversation. It may or not, may not be a pleasure. By the time we get done, we'll see. You never know. I'm hopeful. And um, the quality of what you're doing is so good. And I've enjoyed hearing my peers and colleagues uh, on your podcast so very much. So I'm hopeful. Okay. Well, batter up. <laughs> I'm delighted. Yeah, you reached out to me and you mentioned that you heard a, an old colleague that you hadn't seen or 
heard from in decades. We can actually use that word decades. And uh, then you mentioned that you were there in the very early days of PCOM, Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, which is a big deal. And so I thought, yeah, we'll just like dial the Wayback Machine. In fact, I'm going to set the dial right now. I'm going to take us back to when you first heard about acupuncture, when acupuncture was like first somehow coming into your awareness, what was going on in the world? Like what were the headlines? What was on the news? What were the issues of the day? What what were the personal issues that you were struggling with? Like, give me a, a, a glimpse of the landscape and I'll dial the Wayback Machine to that so we can have a place to start. My first uh, awareness of acupuncture was in Oberlin College in Ohio. A uh, esteemed practitioner, more of Tai Chi, but also he was did acupuncture. Named Marshall Ho was brought to campus, and um, I was already um, involved in practicing Tai Chi with some of his students that had come to Oberlin from Cal, Cal Arts in L.A. And um, there was a dorm and a lecture in a dining hall called Asia House that I populated quite a bit. And so I saw Marshall demonstrate acupuncture there. Further back in the Wayback Machine, I started college as a pre-med chemistry major in 1968. Really? At Oberlin? I actually started one year at Emory as a pre-med and then transferred to Oberlin. As pre-med? I always imagined Oberlin to be this kind of slightly wacky liberal arts place. Well, I'd say not slightly. I'd say very wacky, highly intellectual, very, uh, very international. One of the first weeks there, I saw the great Pulitzer Prize winning poet Gary Snyder speak. Uh, my se- senior year, I got to spend time uh, with Alan Watts. It was, um, and Marsh and um, Al Huang, I saw, I did the sound for Al Huang doing a, a Tai Chi demonstration. And that was the first I learned of Esalen Institute because he had a slideshow. So I started out as a pre-med student. Um, since the age four, I wanted to be a doctor. End up in college and enjoying chemistry and biology, you know, really digging what I'm doing. There was a little intervention called the Vietnam War at that time, and uh, Oberlin was very radicalized. It was one of the first places where Navy recruiters were surrounded. And and I, I wasn't, you could be moderately radical and seem very radical in those days. And I was, you know, we were all, we were all draft eligible. Yep. Good thing you had a deferment, huh? Well, I, I, I actually, because they had a lottery by the time I graduated in 1972 and I pulled a lucky number. So I, I, that was how the deferment, it was, it was like a dice game, a game of chance. So when I was uh, still, um, uh, during those years, uh, during Christmas and a couple of summers, I worked at Cincinnati General Hospital as an orderly. I grew up in Cincinnati. You grew up in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. So you know Grater's ice cream. <laughs> it's in the freezer. <laughs> um, I'm not a big chili hit fan like Cincinnati chili, which is. So um, my experience in the hospital was very interesting, and it, it, co- it conforms to a lot of what I see uh, the research that Ted Kapchuk's doing now about rapport and how that facilitates healing and, and whatnot. And and what I saw in those at that time was the doctors created zero. Most doctors created zero rapport with patients. As an orderly and the nurses and the you know the the bedpan emptier, emptiers and the bed changers, we were the human human contact. And so, a combination of things, the role of doctor became a negative role model for me. Mm. This thing that since the age of four, 
you were aiming at it. And now the gloss is off that pumpkin. Taken away. Wow. So it, no, around that time, uh, starting my junior year in college, I took a Chinese uh, literature course in translation. Uh, and I took a course in Buddhism and Taoism, world religions. And uh, a switch went off in my head, and I resonated so heavily with that. I was involved in the Back to the Land movement already and a little bit. And so I just took a turn. I became a religion major. And that was inspirational. I, I, I did Old Testament and New Testament too, and Islam. I mean, it was a, it was a broad-ranging intellectual in, inquiry using phenomenology to try to understand how each religious tradition came up with its its answers. In my senior year, I got very influenced by a man named Thomas Merton's writing. He had already died, but Thomas Merton uh, was a, a bon vivant during the Second World War and a conscientious objector had a sudden transformation and became uh, a Jesuit monk, a Trappist monk, excuse me, a Trappist monk. And he wrote beautifully. He also established one of the first um, connections between mysticism and the Catholic Church and and Zen mysticism. He uh, had a correspondence with D.T. Suzuki. He wrote a book called uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite and Mystics and Zen Masters I read in college. And so that was a very strong thing in, in my life. And again, I already mentioned Back to the Land. So by the time I'm starting my senior year, uh, my good friends who got there a year ahead of me, we had purchased 120 acres of backwood land in Kentucky, hardwood forest, um, caves, um, unfortunately, no easy access water, and an old log cabin that was already over 100 years old. You could see, see the axe marks on the bottom of the cabin. So upon graduation, uh, I moved to uh, rural Kentucky to pursue. And by that time, my friends, after one winter there, had given up. He went to Harvard grad school. (laughs) It's not so easy, is it? There's a reason people got off the land, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and continue to. So uh, Thomas Merton was a hermit monk. And what's interesting is that where I was had this land in Kentucky was not ex- down the road, it was about 20 miles away from Gethsemane Abbey, where Thomas Merton was in residence. That's literally down the road from Thomas Merton. Yes. And, yeah. So uh, synchronicities have always p- played a role in my life. And it seemed, and when I walked into the um, the home of the man who I, we bought the land from in 1971, he had the complete collection of Thomas Merton writing on his bookshelf. Are you like gobsmacked by this stuff sometimes? You're like going to still, still. Yeah, 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 for sure. You're you're just walking down the path. I got this idea. Da, 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 da. Oh yeah, Thomas Merton back to the complete collected works of Thomas Merton. I think we'll buy this place. And it was actually coming back from Gethsemane back to that place in the little town that we stopped at the land at sunset that uh, we bought. Beautiful, beautiful piece of property. Mature forest, hadn't been, very, very special. And so I decide at the age of 21, I'm going to be a, uh, a hermit. Great tradition of religious, spiritual hermitry. Yeah, but I had no, I had no teacher. I mean, I had a teacher in Amstentia with Merton, but I had no guru. I had no, no real guide. So I'll, I'll leave that part of this story out because it, it, things worked out. Um, so five years I spend living in a log cabin, cooking on wood, heating with wood. Wait, is this just you or are there other people at this point? Well, there's other people in the in the county, some other people from Oberlin and friends of friends, other back to the land 
a conscientious objector uh, who had spent time in jail, became a dear friend of mine. So you got community, but you're living in this cabin by yourself. Yeah. And the closest neighbor is about a mile and a half walk away. Okay. So you are a hermit. Yep. Yeah. Electricity was brought in by the rural electric, but no, no phone. I had a phone in my last year there. It was tough. What can I say? It was, it was tough. I think it's hard to imagine. I, I just want to dig into this a little bit if we can. And stubbornness is a, is a virtuous trait, I think, for a lot of us because it keeps us going to like find our way through to the end of something, you know, and, and like traverse the trail, which is a reasonable thing. But you're there for five years. You're by yourself. It's tough. What's the tough part? In the early 70s, because the world was really different back then. Yeah. I had a radio, and so I was following a Watergate. And, um, you know, I was, I was cut off. I mean, it was, it, was, it was isolation therapy. Or not even therapy, isolation life. I had been out of the country before. I traveled some, but I was, uh, I was a Midwesterner. I, there was a local library, and that feeds into our, our story, which I'll get to in a second. But the one thing to note, especially as TCM people, I was living in a valley of, with caves in a cold, dark, damp cabin. And this, this cold and damp really changed my, my body for a while in not, not, not good ways. And I was doing hard physical labor. I, was, I became an um, American tree farmer where the government uh, sent a, a tree specialist to mark trees. So it was like thinning a garden. We thinned, thinned the forest. I mean, he marked trees and I went out. You were a forester. A forester. Uh, a foolish thing I did is I didn't wear uh, ear protection. Um, and I used chainsaws and um, it, it definitely has affected my hearing at this time in my life. I have to have hearing aids. I'm not deaf or anything, but there's certainly tones that I don't hear. Um, and so I, I, I recognized, you know, it was time to get, I was told by family it was the best time to get hearing aids. Now, so what was happening at that time, too, very relevant to our story, is Kissinger and then Nixon go to China. Yes, that famous story. Scotty Reston gets an acute appendicitis. He's the, um, the Pulitzer Prize winning writer for New York Times. He comes back, he writes a book. The Munfordville Library in Hart County had that book. I would go into the library and get, and I, I'm reading this book, and that's where I first really saw, again, really saw acupuncture in a um, in a broad in a broad sense. And another footnote to this, a little bit off the side, is uh, my o- older brother, uh, also an Oberlin grad, starting in about 1966 or 67, starts studying Mandarin Chinese, out of the blue. What on earth? Motivated him to do a thing like that at, at a time like that. Don't know. Meshuggah. It's just a little nuts. Interestingly enough, too, uh, my younger brother's wife is a licensed acupuncturist uh, for many, many years, over 40 years. So he lived in um, Taiwan and taught for three years in the early 70s. And um, so I was, I was into... Chinese uh, things. And and when this happened and uh, the writing about it just picked my interest, something happened to my interest. It fascinated me. And I think you and our listeners will know that, and what I've discovered myself, that uh, there's the potential that your spiritual path can absolutely be involved with being a doctor, practitioner of Chinese medicine. 
And so um, what seemed like I was split in my psyche actually was a, became a unifying event. So here I am still stuck in, not stuck, choosing to stay in this log cabin. I didn't really know what my alternatives were. Uh, again, I was doing hard labor. I was putting up hay and it was, I was uh, harvesting for my neighbors. Uh, the, uh, we, we were called Hart County Hippies. There were about 20 of us that crewed up together. But you were strong back then too. Strong and and willing. We worked really. And these are all people. I mean, one was a, a concert cellist with the Louisville Orchestra and um, became teachers. I mean, these were really wonderful, dear friends who are still, still dear to me in my life. So around 1974 or so, I'm sitting on the front porch of this log cabin. Now, it had been wired and uh, rewired, or not rewired, it had been wired for the first time in 1971, and it had, uh, it had a lightning rod and a grounding pole. And um, I'm, I'm sitting on the front porch watching a summer storm and, and watching the rainfall and just in a nice zone. All of a sudden, simultaneously, there's a clap of thunder. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a, what is a lightning bolt hit the grounding pole behind the house. I'm about six, five or six feet away from an electric plug. A bolt of energy comes out of that electric pu- plug, takes my body and shakes me like a rag doll. And that really happened. It blew out the, the, the radio and a stereo, old, you know, stereo turntable and tuner I had. I blew, blew out the refrigerator. Didn't blow out my heating and cooking source because I was cooking with wood. Didn't burn your house down. Didn't burn my house down and, di- and it didn't knock me unconscious, but it shook me up. Now, I bring that up because it's, it's sort of an f- interesting anecdote, I think. Whether it has anything to do with what happens subsequently I'm, I'm, I'm connecting dots, which is what happened subsequently. I wake up one morning, not, not right away, because now it's winter in the story. I wake up one day from uh, deep sleep. And uh, a, a part of the story, too, is I had no indoor uh, facilities. So I had an outhouse in, a, in 100 acres of woods. And while I'm uh, having, relieving myself of uh, uh, peeing, all of a sudden, in my mind, my whole internal dialogue is, I want to study acupuncture. I want to study acupuncture. I want to study acupuncture. Now, as, as you well know, there's no, there's no profession. There's no schools at this point. There's no, there's no, no. And the idea of going, you know, to China or Taiwan or Japan is just, it's out of my imagination at that point. I think my best year working for farmers, I maybe brought in $1,500 and I could live on that. Uh, so, Michael, it just, it got deep right away or it came from deep and came to the surface. I had a guy on the podcast some time ago and, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about our creation stories. I always ask people like, you know, how'd you find out about this? You know, why'd you choose it? He said he was at a restaurant having lunch and he's listening to two women behind him. And one of them says to the other, I'm going to acupuncture school. And he, in the next moment said to himself, I'm going to do that too. So look, where our thoughts come from or, you know, how our spirit somehow catches the attention of our chattery mind, you know, it's, it's mysterious. And I'll thank you. I'll just leave it at mysterious. And I think, uh, I think a lot of times there's choices and, and, and possibilities that are right in front of us and we're preoccupied and we, we miss them. You know what? That's absolutely true. So 
1976, I get invited to a wedding of a college friend in Mattapawasset, which is near um, the hook of Cape Cod. And at that point, my older brother's back in America doing a doctoral uh, work at Harvard. And he knew about this interest of mine because when he, well, even go back a little bit before, he he had already, he went to China already, but there's a better part of the story coming. He got into China at that, at that time? Yeah. How did he do that? Connections. Was he a spy or something? Holy smokes. It was almost impossible to get in at that point. So he knew about my interest. And so my, my younger and I, brother and I drive to Boston. We spend a couple of nights there. And then we, I go to Mattapawasset for the wedding. And my younger brother stays with my older brother off of Harvard Square. And my older brother, he takes me to a laundry, Chinese laundry off of Harvard Square that's selling three or four books. And I buy my first book, The Outline of Chinese Acupuncture, which became what we call Chinese CMX, they, they call it at Pacific College. And it had the points, it had a little bit of theory, had great charts in it. And I bought that book. Uh, hang on a second. A Chinese laundry. <laughs> okay. Also a part of my story too. So while I was living in the cabin, I became very uh, in, immersed in practicing uh, Hatha yoga. And uh, again, without a, without a guru, without a competent teacher. And I hurt myself, which is not uncommon even with competent uh, teaching. People get hurt in yoga. And I was feeling things in my body uh, that didn't conform to anything I had learned in physiology. And when I got this acupuncture text and I see the meridians, it was like, oh, that's what I'm feeling. That's what I'm feeling. So something was happening with your channel system in doing that work. There was some kind of uh, potentiation going on. So... I'm thrilled with this. And so then the the winter of 1977, uh, my parents want to, they moved from the big house they raised my brothers and myself into a split level house in suburbia. And they asked if I would come up and help move some boxes around. They had movers, but they had some delicate, you know, China and stuff. So I had a friend from high school who had a pickup truck. And so uh, we picked stuff up. And we stopped at what was the only vegetarian restaurant in Cincinnati at the time, up by University of Cincinnati campus. And while we're waiting for our uh, indigestible soy burgers to get <laughs> cooked for us, they have they have the old tabloid of the Mishiokushi East West Foundation macrobiotic newspaper there. This was before it became a magazine. It was just a fold over tabloid. And I'm leafing through it, waiting for our soy burgers, and I see an ad announcing America's first state-approved school of acupuncture, the New England School of Acupuncture. And boom. Boom, of course. In that moment, I knew my life path had changed. That's where you're headed. That's where I'm headed. When I, so I started corresponding by, by letters. You know, we used letters and stamps that still at that time. It was the way we corresponded. And I, I applied and was accepted to, to come to school. And my parents had given me an old Chevy at that point, drove an old Chevy. No, I flew and two good friends drove an old my old Chevy and they I had planted a big field of uh, really good popcorn that season, that summer, because school started in September. So they brought popcorn, my popcorn harvest to me and my old Chevy. And all of a sudden, it's like, a stranger in King Arthur's court or something. I'm walking and, you know, I, I would see more people in uh, 10 minutes than I had seen in, in weeks almost. Right. That must've been a challenge to your nervous system in the beginning to be around 
that many people and to, to be just to be talking that much. The sanctuary was the school. From the first moment I sat my ass down to hear Dr. So teach, I was enamored. And um, I was in a good cohort of people. I was, so this is the fall of 77. I just, from the moment I started, I just loved it. It just, and Dr. So uh, was a very uh, charismatic, entertaining person. I would like to respectfully make a little correction to my, my teacher, John Meyerson, who was on your show. Dr. So was not a barefoot doctor. He used formula treatments, but he was practicing during the war with Japan and the Second World War, and the barefoot doctors didn't come around till after Mao took over in 1949. So, just a small because so, I wanted because Doctor So was part of a tradition, and it wasn't just like a government program, and it, was, it predated the communists. Okay, so he was part of that Republican era of doctors who were amazing doctors. And, and during the war in Hong Kong, he would treat maybe 100 people a day. I mean, his style was just needle, get strong, chi, take it out. And he, and he, he took pulses, uh, but he didn't do differential diagnosis. He worked really from symptomatology and body zones, and, but tremendously effective. I'm reading a really interesting book right now called um, Prescriptions for Virtuosity, Eric Karshmer. And he talks about how back in the Republican era, and probably before, but certainly in the Republican era, they weren't doing differential diagnosis. Differential diagnosis was something that came later for a number of reasons. I'm not going to get into it on this podcast, but it, it would make a lot of sense to me that Dr. So would have looked at what we would call presentation and then just work on that. That's, that's how they worked back then. Yeah. And he was very effective. I mean, he, we did scarring moxibustion. Uh, one of our first classes, I remember John and your podcast talked about, he taught us how to make needles. And uh, I soon took a job as a, a graveyard baker in Harvard Square. So I had a very strange life. I was up all night baking, but I was warm because the, the house, I, I was living in a house there. There were nine of us. I was the only American. It was in uh, Bedford and there was one bathroom. I can't even imagine that now. <laughs> nine, nine. <laughs> But we got along, and it was it was it was wonderful. And um, so I would go to school. We had night classes, and after school, I would I would take the bus into Harvard Square, and uh, I worked in a place called the Garage. If someone any listeners remember that era, it was just around the corner from the Coop, the famous Harvard bookstore. About six weeks into the program, there's all this buzz around school that there's a special teacher who's going to be teaching a Friday night class. It's going to be out. You have to pay extra. It's outside of the curriculum. And that was Ted Kapchuk. And I was in Ted's first class. Fresh back from uh, Asia, I suspect. Yes. Fresh off the, fresh off the boat. And uh, even the fact he was teaching on Friday night wouldn't, wouldn't happen now because he keeps, keeps the Shabbat. And so, and Ted, he was an absolute inspiration from the, he was just on fire and his personalities, he's Leo, he just, and he, he was teaching us the web that has no weaver book, basically, straight from his mouth. First book I ever read on Chinese medicine. It's one I recommend so often to patients still. So I was just, uh, to sound like someone from Kentucky, I was just a pig in the mud. I was, ha I was so, so, uh, 
so enamored and so happy with the work. And I now, it, now one thing I want to point out, I think it's interesting. Not one time did anybody in my cohort, and there was a cohort ahead of us, I never heard one person talk about a profession. No one talked about, oh, I'm going to get an office and do this and this, or I'm going to specialize in this or that. There was no one ever had a peep about what we were going to do with this sacred knowledge we were acquiring. It reminded me a little bit about um, like a close encounter of the third kind where there's an energy source and people are just drawn to it and not necessarily know why they're drawn to it. But the uh, just uh, a name drop for a moment. So in the cohorts that I was in then, out of that cohort, uh, Stuart Watts started Southwest Acupuncture College. Sachi Ambas started the school in Portland. Mal Finkelstein went back to Oregon and became a real leader in na- national stuff. Um, Tom Riamaki starts OMS. Something really happened there. Yeah, something was going on. Something was gestating. And, you know, I'm so amazed at you guys. And I and, and really, too, grateful to you guys. And here's why. When I came around to eventually getting interested, there was a profession. I already had a profession. I was looking to change my profession. And you know what? I liked having a profession. I liked being able to make a good living. That was great. I didn't want to not make a good living. So it was wonderful that by the time I came along, I could do that. But you guys, what are you doing there? We're studying the sacred knowledge. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know yet. We don't know where the, we don't have a parachute. We don't have a parachute. We don't know yet. We don't know. How was it for you hanging with that uncertainty or was, I mean, what, I was so certain about the 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 blessing of what I was learning and the people I was with that it, I didn't uh, I didn't lose sleep over it. Okay, that you know I just want to stick a pin in that for a moment because so much of schooling and what we do at this point it's so transactional. I'm going to do this to get that, and I'm going to pay for this, and you're going to give me that, and then I'm going to be able to do this. It's all transactional, and you guys, you were just following something and we could get existential and talk about reincarnation or you know any or you're just a bunch of damn hippies i don't know but we were diverse a diverse lot uh, we definitely were but we we all loved what we were doing uh, at that point maybe that's part of the secret sauce so as i was starting to the program was going to start to come to an end i really didn't know what what next and at that point, I was introduced to the, the whole field of somatic psychology, Wilhelm Reich, Alexander Lowen of bioenergetics, Rolfing. I was introduced to these things, and I found a um, a program in San Diego that was a which was a, an approved. It wasn't accredited. That we weren't talking about accreditation yet, but it was an approved uh, California approved doctoral program in what they called holistic psychology, which was somatic based, and so. You know, I'm living up here in Boston, and San Diego's one's yin, one's yang, and so it seemed like a good, a good leap. And so, so I applied for to grad school there, and uh, I spent six months back in Kentucky, and I was started to treat farmers and farmers' wives. Every, you know, every, and you know, the culture of that part of the, I'm not sure right now because technology, but people would hang around the mechanics, you know, the guys who fixed the tractors and welded the plows. And I started to hear that there's a boy living it down in that holler who can help you with your back pain. So I was I was a barefoot doctor. 
and I was, I was helping people, uh, farmers, you know, I can't turn the chicken in the skillet because my <laughs> arm hurts, you know, carpal tunnel now. So I, I had a little practice going and I, you know, and I loved it and people invite, and then I, people invite me into their home and cook for me. And it was, it was delightful, but I knew I was coming to California. So I, I come to California. I'm in this doctoral program, but I'm also a, a trained acupuncturist, but I didn't even think to get the California license at that point. At that point, you would have had, I needed to have three years of experience out of California, but there was some this and that. So I was just working on my doctorate. And I, and, but interestingly enough, back to my family connections, in 1980, the Chinese government gave an invitation to the U.S. State Department to host seven American grad students for a year at the Chinese expense, at, either in Beidad and, or Fudan, Beidad and University. Peking University in Beijing, Fudan, and, and Shanghai. And lo and behold, my brother's one of the seven people chosen. And this was, he was on the Today Show. It was a, a big, a big deal and stuff. So he's, he's in China. He, he stops in California. My younger brother's at Cal Arts at this point. So we're in Southern California. We spend a few days together. He goes to China and he knew my interest. And so he, because he had been in Taipei and, for teaching for three years, he knew a lot of the uh, understaff at the U.S. Embassy there. And what the U.S. government did is they moved understaff from Taipei to Beijing and then appointed a new ambassador. So he was able to get me a, an embassy invitation. And uh, so in the in the winter, uh, I remember I arrived right before uh, New Year's. I'm pretty sure it was either 7980 or 8081. I know it's cold as can be. Mm -hmm. Beijing is freezing that time of year. I mean, even in the hospital, Xinhua Hospital, where I was able to get in, they had little coal stoves and they would bake potatoes on the stove that they were heating their, heating their room for their patients with. So I, I got to go. I, I lived at Fudan University in the dorm. Uh, we had hot water two hours a day. And I went to the hospital and I saw things there that just, I had never seen scalp acupuncture. Dr. So did not teach us uh, fire cups. And they use fire cups a lot in the hospital. I saw bleeding techniques. I saw needling into organs. Needling into organs. My brother uh, connected me with a Western-trained MD who had Oberlin connections. He studied Western medicine in China. Uh, University of Pennsylvania had a med school in China before the revolution. So he studied Western medicine, and he, he became a uh, guide for me. And uh, he brought me to the hospital. He introduced me to under underground healers where I saw some things that were astounding. The needling into uh, organs was um, at an oncology hot wing uh, where patients were terminal and they would use, you know, they would go right into the pancreas and, and they, what can I say? I saw it. Yeah. I don't know if it did seem to help. I wasn't there long enough to, to see, but they were doing it in a hospital environment. But just to see that integration, because there, you know, there was a Western, there was a oncology wing, an internal medicine wing, and there was a Twayna wing, and there was an acupuncture wing, all in the same same facility. All in the same place. What You mentioned you saw underground things. Yes. I'll give an example of one. Not everybody was aligned with the Communist Party or could get approved to practice Chinese medicine, even if they'd been in a family tradition. And, and what, with, this, again, this is 1980, 81. Everybody's still wearing blue. There's been no economic miracle in China yet. There was one store in Shanghai of about 14 million people where Westerners can shop. 
it could have been a hundred years before, except for maybe the car, the buses that were running and stuff. Except a hundred years before they would have had more commerce. But you still saw, saw women with bound feet on the street and stuff. So one, one rainy night, Dr. Yao takes me to a guy named Langen, who he, who was training Dr. Yao's son in martial arts because they were vulnerable because they had connections with, with the West. During the Cultural Revolution, Dr. Yao, who was a very skilled diagnostician in internal medicine, was a hospital janitor. And his wife, who taught English at the university, was, was punished. So he was trying to train his son to be self-reliant and such. So he takes me to see Langen. So we walk into, you go up two flights of steps, like four families are sharing one kitchen. A family's living room is their dining room, bedroom, everything. If you have to pee, you go back downstairs or through an alley to a public bathroom. So we go in there and you know I stand out like a store thumb, although I'm wearing blue. And uh, it's not a big room, but there's maybe 12 or 15 people in chairs around the perimeter. Some are holding chicken, some are holding eggs, some are holding cabbages. And this is the exchange that they're going to do with the practitioner. So one by one, he treats everybody and I'm observing and I'm drawn into the conversation. Dr. Yao's translating for me. And then finally, everybody's gone. And, And Langen... He talked not like a gangster, but a little like a gangster. You know, he, he, he mumbled. And so at one point, uh, he, he says something to Dr. Yao, and it's just the three of us now. Maybe his wife is there too. He said, would you like to see a demonstration of chi? Sure. So he says something. His wife goes into the kitchen and gets a, a meat a cleaver. You know, the looks like a little axe, very sharp, and a chopstick. And Langan says he takes it and he... I hold the chopstick and he boom and it, it cuts in half. He then steps back from me and takes this cleaver and starts whacking his abdomen with the bladed side. Shreds his t-shirt, pulls up the shredded t-shirt and there's not a mark on his stomach. Oh my. So I had a demonstration of chi. What did that do to your sense of of what this medicine was? That there was mysteries and power that probably is going to take a few lifetimes to discover, but to know that it exists. I'm a strong believer that in human potential, and if an individual has that potential, we all have some potential to advance. And so um, now here I'm remembering a story from 43 years ago. Like it, I'm, I'm sweating because that's how I feel <laughs> when I was watching that in front of my eyes. I was like, oh my God. Am I going to get out of here alive? Just elevated liver enzymes, but I got out of China alive. So, so now I want to come. Let's get back to PCOM for a sec, because I don't know how much time we have, but we, you know what, we have as much time as we want. Here, here's the great thing about a podcast: if someone doesn't have time to listen to it all right now, they can listen to it later. All right, you just you just like turn it off, and then you turn it on again later. And if you don't want to listen, you just don't listen. So we have as much time as we want. All right, good. So I come back to San Diego and I'm continuing, continuing my psychology studies. And I'm, I'm part of a, within the, the psychology department, there's a, a, a holistic massage program that is really a mystery school disguised as a massage school. And it's, it's a direct roots from Esalen Institute and the Eureka Institute. And um, it was an ama- a wonderful program. And, I, and I'm very much a somatic therapist, uh, and, and that's where I've published actually more than anywhere else is in somatic Asian, East Asian therapy. At that time, there was really no 
acupuncture. There was a couple of Taiwanese and maybe a Korean, and there was one MD who did Worsley acupuncture in San Diego. There was a Tai Chi community. And in the massage program I did, we learned Tai Chi and Qigong right away. All the body work was grounded in, in Tai Chi, flowing stance, swish, shifting weight. And uh, one day I get a call on a landline because that's all we had. And this is uh, introducing himself. Hi, uh, you're Rick Gold. Yeah. Uh, my name's Joe Lazaro. I've been sent to San Diego by Stephen Rosenblatt, who was the one who brought Dr. So to America that helped start the New England School of Acupuncture and then started California Acupuncture College in L.A. Stephen had a PhD from uh, in psychology from UCLA before he studied acupuncture. UCLA had a very early pain clinic with acupuncture before it was even licensed in the state. So Joe says, um, and, and Joe and Steve were either college or high school friends. They'd been friends for many years. Joe said, I'm coming to San Diego to start a program, a branch of California Acupuncture College. I understand you're a student of Dr. So and Ted Kapchuk's. Are you interested in getting involved? Heck yes, I'm interested in getting involved. So we make plans to, uh, and this is just an idea. We make plans to have lunch. At that time, there was a well-known vegetarian restaurant in San Diego called Kung Foods. It was a vegetarian restaurant. And uh, Joe and I met there. We had instant rapport. He was a, uh, he did Tai Chi beautifully, uh, but he wasn't he wasn't interested in being an acupuncturist. He had more of a business mind. Oh, he subsequently became an acupuncturist. Very Italian. We bonded beautifully right away. While we're sitting there, Alex Tiberi walks in. Now, I don't know if you are aware of who Alex Tiberi is or what. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I am aware of who he, I mean, you could say is because his presence endures in many ways, but you know, was because he's no longer with us. He sounded like a bigger than life kind of dude. Bigger than life. Although at that time he was sort of uh, small. He wasn't a Harley driving, tattooed, uh, charismatic. He was just sweet as sweet as can be. So uh, it, again, it was like the New England school. All of a sudden, Joe is this energy spot or the, so and I'm getting ahead of the story. So Joe, Alex, and I become the amigo, the three amigos. Alex is a Sicilian. His parents ran an Italian grocery outside of Pittsburgh. You wouldn't think that this mystical 
genius, charismatic, incredibly communicator, powerful healer who specialized in pediatrics. And horses. And horses and horseback, bareback horsery, horseback archery. He had a guru in Hungary that he would visit who had trained in Mongolia. And he would dress up like a Mongolian warrior. Pacific College has Alex on tape, uh, on video. I mean, he was spellbinding. Even when people started using PowerPoint, he still used overhead stuff. He was So Joe, he was going to start this school. His first hire was a woman named Anna Davidia, who uh, was originally from Argentina, uh, had gotten very involved in Tai Chi. I'm not even sure how she ended up in San Diego. She lived in Iran for a number of years. I'm not even sure of all of her backstory. Although I saw her yesterday, I should have, should have asked in preparation for today. So she, he hired her as an administrative assistant. Joe and I, his agreement was, Rick, I'd like you to teach a f- some introductory point classes. Um, and when we get enough of a cohort, which actually turned out to be five, we'll, ha- we'll bring teachers from LA and get you guys ready to take the California boards. Ooh, that'd be convenient for you. And so I said, oh my gosh, you are an angel, angel, angel. So we started California Acupuncture College. One of the teachers that was brought from LA, Jacques Morimarco, is the dean at Emperor's now. And um, he's French. And uh, I consider him a brother. I mean, I don't get to see much. He comes to our symposiums and stuff. So it was, uh, my cohort ended up being five people. We all took the boards together in 1983. And in 1983, I finished my defense of my doctoral dissertation, took my acupuncture license. I walked through a door and now I'm ready to be post-student, although I'm still a student. I'm ready to have a profession. What we did is, and Alex had already gotten licensed. Alex had a photographic memory. So, and he had lived in Boston for three years after he went to acupuncture school. So he could take the college. Now he went to NISA as well. He went to NISA a little bit, but he had a, a teacher, a Korean teacher who he considered his master. There's a famous street called Green Street in Cambridge that Ted was on, the Korean teacher was on, and some other luminaries, I forget who all who. So we had created California Acupuncture College with the help from, we had curriculum help, you know, obviously, and financial help. And, Cal- and we were doing well. And in the meanwhile, Steve started a branch in Santa Barbara also. And I had been working uh, part-time in a really cool little old building that had been a pediatrician's office that now 40 years later is in an acupuncture clinic again. I was doing biofeedback for a dentist who was very forward thinking. And he had a dental office and next door he had uh, this building. Subsequently, Al Joe and I had our acupuncture practice in his original dental building. One more crossover of Time and space. The crossover in time and space. It, it's funny. It's almost at times like you're unstuck in time, you know, like influence from different time streams all coming through at, at particular moments. So Joe is still, Joe at this point is taking classes and the, running the school. He needed a place where uh, observers could observe and interns could practice. So we used that building. I had the connection to the dentist. So Alex and I built our private practices there. And students uh, assisted and then became interns there. Believe it or not, one of my assistants was the great Richard Tan of the balance method. No one knew that he knew what he knew. He was working as an engineer in San Diego and decided to get it, to go back into his family tradition of Chinese medicine. So he came. He was Richard Tan was our student. I mean, it's crazy. If people who know Richard Tan is will find that 
Well, he just needed to get a credential, right? Just like get the paper and, oh, by the way, watch, watch this. So I'm getting close to Pacific College now. We're, we're, we're moving that way. So we're buzzing along. You know, Alex and I are seeing 20, 25 people a day. There was, I think, eight or nine treatment rooms there. Uh, we had good. We had a lot of assistance at those times. We the assistants could pull needles, and we were just we were doing it. We were just so happy. And you were doing it. You were teaching. You were helping others learn. You were treating patients. And all this from backwoods Kentucky is now starting. You know, you you've kind of you're cruising at thirty five thousand feet now. Yeah, well, I had I had a work ethic. Still do. Yeah. So at some point, and I don't know why exactly. Stephen Rosenblatt, who started California Acupuncture College and served as the president for many years, he either at that point decided to go to medical school or the fiscal balance of the organization was such that he sold California Acupuncture College, even though it was a nonprofit, to a profit company, for-profit company, which isn't, isn't kosher, but he, it happened. It turns out those people uh, were incompetent or criminal. I'm not really sure which. And within about, I'd say a year or two, we could because we we were teaching for them still and running our clinical practices. You know, all of a sudden your paychecks are later and later. And um, so Joe, Alex, and I started to con- we we started to connect the dots. Joe at that point had gotten much more into being a practitioner. And uh, the three of us decided we needed to pull our private practices out to maintain the integrity of our work. And that you could see that ship was going down. Yeah, that ship was going down. So we f- we found a space. Uh, it was an empty shell above a brand new chiropractic building that's a still a, a healing center now. And we started Pacific Center of Health, uh, which still exists as a professional uh, corporation for medicine. I was there yesterday treating patients. I'm no longer the owner, but uh, I still can work out. They still have me work there. I'm happy to work. They're happy. I'm happy. So we built out a building. We, we pulled together a f- you know, enough money to build out a building at that time. And uh, we started Pacific Center of Health. And uh, it, was going, it was really going well. Now, is this a school or is this a... This is just a, this is a clinic. This is a clinic. This is a group of practitioners. We're getting our... We're getting a practitioner jam on here. We're working cooperatively. We're in this thing together. We got a health center. Yep, uh, it was it was us. We had a we a few outstanding students came along because Alex and I were busy teaching all the time, so we didn't try to work five times. Now, and you were still teaching at the school. Yeah, California Acupuncture School College. Yeah, but we could tell that that was falling apart. The school there was it was just getting strange, so. Um, Joe, Alex, and myself, and Anna Davidia, who I mentioned early, we started to meet. We met first time. Anna had just had her daughter. We met on a picnic table behind her house. I remember outside. And we decided, look, there's probably at least 40 students that really want to keep studying. We want to keep teaching. Are we? And, and Joe and Anna had already gotten the school up and running from nothing. Are we going to put our chips on the table and start our own school? And the answer became yes. One afternoon around a picnic table. It had been brewing. Of course. But yeah. And so we decided, and, and we this name and that name and this name and that name, we came up with, we used Pacific, Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. 
uh, saying Oriental medicine was not politically incorrect yet. And so it became a nice. It's only recently that it became politically incorrect. All the schools have been blah, 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 Oriental medicine. And we meant nothing bad by it when we said it either. No, it was respectful. Yeah, I think it's important to read. I just want to stick a, a little pin in this. It's important to remember that at that time, when people chose those names, it was with deference and it was with respect. Absolutely. Because we didn't want to be a specific college of acupuncture because we already, you know, for me to get licensed in 83, I had to do a cram course in herbs uh, because California was way advanced in herbs. And Yeah, you were bigger than just acupuncture. So um, we uh, pulled our resources. We rented a little uh, L-shaped space in the Hillcrest district of, of San Diego. And uh, under threat from the, a suit from the California Acupuncture College people, uh, we decided we were going to go for it. We filed papers with the Secretary of State. Um, they knew Joe at the Acupuncture Licensing Committee uh, in uh, Sacramento. We got all our T's crossed and the I's dotted. And uh, so we, we started. And we were literally like, a, it wasn't a one-room school, one schoolhouse. It was a two-room two schoolhouse where during the day was, we had a clinic and then we modulated the treatment tables out or took the pads off and they became desks. The administration worked in a corner where there was also a classroom later in the day. Early days, man. But more than one school was like that. And again, we 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 started with about forty students, and the, the, the it was all cash tuition. There was no no student loans or anything at that point. So this is nineteen eighty six. We founded Pacific College, and this, again, Alex and I are. are either teaching or, or practicing. Uh, he was already a, a father, uh, but he had more energy than a hummingbird that he just could go, 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 go. And uh, I would stop, get a little bite to eat after working all day to teach a three-hour class at night. And, but it, un, unbeknownst to people outside of California, we didn't have to use a freeway to go between the clinic and the school. We could, there was a, I used a bicycle most of that time. So uh, we outgrew that space. And we, we went into a, a building that was the, the corporate office of a, a big development company. It's still in the, the, we went from Hillcrest to Mission Hills, which are adjoining neighborhoods. And we, we, now we had clinic rooms. We had a few classrooms. We had administrative area. We had a little library. This building, interestingly enough, had two uh, lead line safes because it was a, it was a business. And those two lead line spaces made such interesting treatment rooms. They really were, you could feel the heaviness of the lead line. Lead line safes. Big walk-in safes. Why were they lead lined? Uh, I guess for fire protection, most likely. So they were deep, still, quiet. Yeah, they were great. And uh, the school grew. Now, I don't remember the exact year, but sometimes in the late, late, little bit later 80s, no, let me, let me, I'm going to come back to that. So about nine months into Pacific College, it's the, we brought two administrators over from CAC. We're working really hard. Uh, Anna was hand handling the herb, the herb curriculum. Joe was bouncing around between theory and uh, helping administrative. But in, the, our, in our language, our energy was stuck. Uh, we were foursome. The energy just, it was, it was going to edges and getting stuck. And, and, I, and I picked up on this. And uh, I convened our group. We were the board and the faculty. I convened our four, the four of us, and I said, "Look, something's not flowing for us. I think we need we need something." 
And the something that came to my mind was there had been an outstanding student at California Acupuncture College who I, we'd become friendly, who there just something about him that I thought there was a potential there. When he got out of school, he were, he joined another guy and they opened up a clinic and they did marketing and they were very, very professional. But I thought that there was something about him that seemed like his karma was much bigger than that. And this is Jack Miller, who uh, became the president and the visionary leader of Pacific College. And so we approached Jack and uh, we went to a little sushi bar, remember, Kios, I'm, my, I'm, I'm keeping the cobwebs out. And we, we offered Jack to become the uh, um, consulting director. We didn't want to offend the two people we had, but they could feel the, en- the energy on them. They, they quit soon after. And I remember Jack, it was a part-time job. He was still going to, and Jack saying, you know, don't, don't worry. I feel like I've got this under control. No, he, uh, he had it under control, but he, he could steer a rocket ship. He actually became a race car driver um, for a number of years, too. Handy skill if you're an acupuncturist. I, I'm curious, at that moment in time, first of all, I mean, you've got all this somatic therapy and psychology and acupuncture and, you know, living in the backwoods. So, you know, there's a part of you that's attuned to things. You recognize that uh, number four isn't working. We need a fifth. We need something else. I'm thinking five is, you know, <laughs> pretty handy number in Chinese medicine. There's that, right? So you find this guy and you go, yeah, him. There's something about him, visionary. What about him made you go, hmm, visionary? I have to say, Jack exceeded my wildest dreams of what he would create for us. The leadership he's provided, the fiscal responsibility, the uh, the national uh, committee work he's done. I can't really answer that, Michael. It's just a hunch, I would say, uh, because again, he 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 broadened what I was thinking tenfold, hundredfold. I just knew we needed help, and we needed the energy to run in a cir- five element circle. And my and my partners uh, trusted uh, my intuition. They all knew Jack too, because uh, he, he had been a straight A student and. Followed a hunch. Followed the hunch. So we rented this this other new building where we, we had grown, and it was we were, we really were a functioning school. And um, we got our first accreditation in 1990 from ACOM, which was you know big 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 thing to do. It wasn't regional, but it was important. It was national, and uh, yeah, it's a big deal. I remember when the school that I went to got its accreditation. It was like, oh, good, we're going to be able to like be accredited. It's not all for nothing. So, well, so we were in this new building and we just signed a new renewal lease. Around the same time, a Harvard medical doctor named David Eisenberg, uh, who wrote a book called Qi, I believe it's called, who I met at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing when I was back there in 80. And he was he came through official channels and he was totally stymied. I came there unofficially and had all these great hospital experiences. But he published a, uh, in a I forget where it was published, about the growing uh, interest in alternative and integrative medicine and acupuncture. And it got press. And so all of a sudden, the inquiries to study Chinese medicine at this time increased almost exponentially. And now, young people are coming with their parents right out of college. The kids are just out of college. They're coming with their parents to be interviewed. It's not just people that are a little bit older that are you know, post-hippies or second and third careers. So all of a sudden, We've outgrown our space. It happened within about a within a year of signing a new lease. So we were having meetings about what are we going to do. 
interesting enough, I'm, I have a patient in my practice at that time who's a landscape architect of the same company that owns the building we're in. And he tells me that they're developing a whole office park of single-story uh, buildings that they want to have mixed, mixed use, very convenient, right between two, two freeways, close to the zoo in downtown, you know, the areas where our students want to live. So he said to me, I said, really? He said, yeah, and it's, they're just empty shells. They're just getting finished now. And he said, there's a good chance since you're already our tenant in this building that they'll just let that lease go and sign you a lease. And that's what happens. Wow. One step of synchronicity after another. And so we started out with, I don't know, maybe five, 7,000 square feet in a middle suite. Ultimately, we took over that whole whole building and then half of the one next to it. So I, I guess we're probably got up to around twelve or 15,000 square feet. Or maybe, I, I don't even know. It, we, be, we became a, a real campus. Two minutes away, there's a, a little, there's a Ralph's Grocery and a, a great Tendori restaurant. You know, it was a good place for our students. Off-street parking. We had a parking lot, but not enough for the way we grew. So here's a so that's so now now we're we're ready to fly. A, a part of the story I think is really important, and I think part of our success is uh, the five of us now: Joe, Alex, Anna, Jack, and myself. We met for lunch every Tuesday for years, and we were united because we loved the medicine, we loved being educators, and we had love for each other. And this is the, uh, the, the fiery source of Pacific College. It was born in love, I would have to say. And it wasn't, it wasn't born to be a successful business. We didn't have a long-term business plan. You know, we just were, loved this mess. We, we wanted to teach. We wanted to help spread it. We've, we, we were just committed to that. And our lunches were, uh, I, I mean, I was the secretary of the board. I took minutes occasionally when we had a motion, but really uh, it was just five friends and we became well-known at the various, you know, small restaurants around our neighborhood. And uh, whenever we were all here, we always ate together. Now at one of those lunches, I had maintained a relationship with Ted Kapchuk. I said, wouldn't it be great to bring Ted out from Boston to uh, do a weekend. We mulled that over and all of a sudden Jack says, well, if we're going to bring Ted out, why don't we enlarge the vision and what became Pacific Symposium? So in 1989, we had our first Pacific Symposium and uh, it was successful. And uh, it, and now we're about to what it was, we're going to be 30 uh 34 years, 35 years now, uh, 34 years of specific symposiums. And over time, the luminaries of our field have joined us here in San Diego. And um, it's become just a wonderful event. It's, it's CEU, loaded with CEUs. It's in a gorgeous little nook on the bay across the street from the ocean. Um, in a jungle environment at a ho- wonderful hotel. And, uh, and so that's how Symposium started. Five friends at lunch. Hey, why don't we bring Ted out? Okay. Why not invite a bunch of other friends as well? Oh, okay. The more the merrier. 
before Ted took his position at Harvard, he uh, stayed here for a number of months and taught herbs at Pacific College, just regular curriculum classes. And that was that was a treasure. It was just so wonderful. So um, we just so this the school's growing. Um, Alex and Joe and I still have Pacific Center of Health, which became a, v- a very busy clinic. It was separate, and we we would also supervise at the school, but we had students assisting at the clinic. The school at that point in the center uh, were maybe ten minutes apart. You know, they were they were easy to get to between and so, and uh, things are going great. Built this whole little ecosystem. Yeah. And the Taoist Sanctuary, which was the which was here back in the early uh, late seventies, is still where Tai Chi was being taught and still is being taught in Qigong. And so a real a real we became a for myself my what my eyes saw was we came a went from being a desert of Chinese medicine to a, an oasis. And uh, San Diego, when I moved here in seventy uh, late. Uh, First, I drive December 30th, 1978. So let's say January 79. It was a backwater place. I mean, there were hardly, there's maybe one or two tall buildings downtown. This whole biotech centers around Torrey Pines didn't exist. Uh, there were just open fields east of La Jolla. I mean, I couldn't believe it because LA was already in a huge metropolis. San Diego was a sleepy Navy town and uh, right on the border with Tijuana. In those states, you could just go into Tijuana and come back out. You didn't need a passport. You just just walk across the border. Yeah. So one thing Jack was interested in and we encouraged was a participation at the national level. What does that mean? Well, I remember you when you interviewed Malvin, uh, he talked about the different, and John too, the different, com- one, there was accreditation committee formed and education committee forms on the national, the, the schools uniting, uh, we're stronger together. We're not really competing with each other. We're regionals and, and stuff. And so uh, we encouraged Jack, uh, and he was, had interest in that. So he had his pulse on what was happening around the country, and he knew that New York was going to come online with a license. in ninety. It happened in 93, but starting in 92. So we decided to open a Pacific College in New York City, which we did in 1993. There were new regs. We qualified for it. Um, we came in uh, not brash. We actually subled from the uh, Ohashi Institute, the Shiatsu, Ohashiatsu, a well-known Shiatsu teacher, still teaching, I think, well into his 80s or 90s. We built ourselves organically. At that time, you could get, I think still in New York, you can get either an acupuncture license, an herbal license, or, or both. But we came in with the whole curriculum. I mean, it seems like a smart thing to do, expand what you're doing, share the resources you have, go into a marketplace where people are going to be thirsty for what you have to offer. There was a lot of underground acupuncture in New York already, a lot. And uh, we also had uh, Jack, who has this amazing ability to have people row in the same direction. Getting acupuncturists to row in the same direction? Yeah, and administrators and teachers. and That's impressive. Yeah. So I remember going to New York with Jack after we were going to leave Ohashi. We looked at a lot of different buildings. Uh, there's a lot of restrictions in New York where you can have a school and uh, this and that. But ultimately, we found a great space in the Flatiron Building, which is an iconic building in New York. In the Flatiron, right, right by Washington Park. Yeah. And we were there for, we were there for many, many years. Totally iconic. And then uh, 
Uh, but then something changed with that building. So Pacific College in New York is now in the financial district. Down, and, and part of that was proximity to Brooklyn because a lot of the students come across the Brooklyn Bridge. And so that, that really worked. Likewise, uh, in, in 2000, uh, Illinois was coming online. New regs in Illinois were going to allow for acupuncture uh, education and licensing. So we opened the Chicago branch then. So that's how you spread out to those different uh, different areas. Yeah. And um, and that's that's where we stopped in terms of expansion. And then, but uh, an interesting thing is all the schools uh, always had somatic departments uh, where we taught Twena, uh, circulatory massage, shiatsu. And then I brought Thai massage uh, into the conversation and we had Thai massage being taught. And so um, that could be an elective for the, I think the acupuncture students had to do one or two massage courses to get somatic skills and touch skills. It's a good idea. So there's a, then there's a sad part of the story in a little bit uh, because uh, Joe became very sick. And um, I think Joe left us, I'm going to say 26 years ago now. Oh, a while ago. Yeah. Alex became very sick. And he left us, I think, eight or nine years ago. And uh, another opportunity, Alex, how Alex started to get sick is a, a hero's journey, which is what Alex's life was about. But and he fought for a long time, and Joe too. Uh, but so my two partners from Pacific Center left me. Uh, they didn't leave me; they left all of us. And uh, it's still that left big holes for you. Big, it still feel it in my heart, and. Alex was, uh, I mean, Joe stopped teaching, especially after he started to get sick. He, but uh, Alex kept teaching. And, and Alex actually uh, moved to North Carolina and built a horse rink. Uh, he, he bought like 25 acres of land that had horses. And I remember I visited him there uh, before he died. And it was, it was a little paradise he'd created. And uh, on a longer river, it was really, really special. So we had to do something which uh, our, gener- our our ilk don't necessarily do, but I think Jack was so visionary on this too, is uh, an exit plan. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. You know, when you're young, you don't think about an exit plan. You don't even think about a plan B. 
It was like, I'm shooting for this thing I want to go for. But yeah, with a certain maturity and with things growing to a certain level of development, exit plan is really responsible. Yeah. So, uh, Jack, uh, we, we, we met and Jack, we talked and we decided that, um, we had a commodity. The other thing too, is we wanted to do regional WASC accreditation and that takes some very deep pockets. So, um, long and short of it, we, um, hired, I guess a business broker, you would call it. And, uh, they developed a, uh, prospectus that included you know, all three campuses and the symposium business. And, uh, and then we were acquired in December. Uh, it took over a year of this and that once in December of 08, right during the financial crisis, we were required acquired. And at this point, uh, you know, Joe was gone. He didn't get to benefit. His widow did. Joe had some terrible personal tragedy in his life. And um, he never got to, I mean, we were having fun and, you know, we were enjoying our success, but um, he never really got to taste the, the the whole fruit. Alex, Alex was still alive, but not in San Diego. He was still coming to symposium after 08 for a little bit. And so we were purchased, uh, acquired by a group who have been very uh, wonderful. Um, they've really helped move the school to was- full WASC accreditation. Very professional, very respectful. Uh, Jack was stayed the CEO president from 08 to uh, I think 2021 or 2022. He's now just he's now just, he's the chairman of the board now. So that our DNA is still very active in in the institution. And along the way, Pacific College became Pacific College of Health and Sciences now, and uh, has some auxiliary programs. is is looking into holistic nursing programs now. They're going to launch the first one in New York. Uh, I think they want to enroll a class to start in January. What is holistic nursing? Basically, it's um, nurses in general are, are, tend to be very humanistic, as you discovered as an orderly. Yeah, and so I think it's also there's going to be they're going to be taught. Chinese medical theory, uh, communication skills, co- coaching school skills. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the whole curriculum, but it's going to have. Um, it's not going to be just biomedical. It's going to be integrative, I would say. But maybe check the Pacific College website, and there's a better description than I than I just offered. Because I'm, I'm, I'm definitely uh, off the bench in the sense. You know, I'm not. I don't have my finger on the pulse. It's going on, but I have to say with a great deal of joy uh, that my daughter is going to be a soon graduate of Pacific College. Our daughter. That's sweet. Yeah, and so I, I, I hear about stuff, and golly, the kind of patients that come to the clinic that sh- that she sees are so complex. It's it's something else. But the clinic's very active, and uh, we have very good relation uh, in all campuses with medical institutions, and uh, we have out. We have our students working in homeless shelters and for veterans and active duty. And we're very, very much community oriented. And I think that, uh, you know, there's definitely a shortage of acupuncturists, but the demand for nurses is even greater. And uh, and sadly, uh, the nursing profession is getting brutalized in the insurance game. But there's jobs available. There's jobs. It's, you know, and it's also part of the conventional medicine system, which, you know, has a leg up. There's, you know, there's that, uh, in, I'm not going to touch insurance cause that's a whole other tar baby, but, uh, that's a nice gentle way of saying it. 
Well, I sometimes am uh, circumspect. I so appreciate this conversation. I'm sitting here thinking, and it's great hearing, you know, the the growth in the history lunch every week because, well, that's just how we ran the thing, you know? People that love what they're doing and appreciate each other building something together. That's uh, that's good DNA, my friend. That's powerful. Love is a good DNA to have, you know? There's that. But I'm, but I'm thinking of you, just imagining you back at in Boston studying this with all the characters that you were studying with. What are we going to do with this? Didn't even ask yourself that question. You're just busy immersing yourself in it. Never came up. It never came up. You just trusted it. Pretty amazing. You know, like to me, I'm going to get a little political here. I think that the, 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 like the, the political dreams of the hippie generation, the anti-war generation, mostly failed in this country. But I think there's been two revolutionary uh, movements that are worth noting. One of them is Chinese medicine in America, and the other is yoga, and yoga mindfulness and meditation. I don't think, you know, the fact that we're licensed in every state and uh, our primary care providers in many of them, it's just outstanding. And, you know, our audience doesn't need to know how effective our medicine can be from pediatrics to geriatrics, everything in between. You know, how many babies are on earth because Chinese medicine helped with fertility? How, how many people can get off of medications? How many people are able to survive through cancer treatment? Um, and I think that we haven't even reached our potential impact in this country. We're just still trimming the edges of our potential. And we still have, um, you know, we still have adversaries who don't really want us to provide uh, what we can provide. And uh, it's sort of counterintuitive to the extent that we're cost effective um, as practitioners. We, you know, we, I don't know if you, sort of a small tangent, if you saw recently that uh, these over-the-counter drugs for gastritis and uh, reflux, gastric reflux, um, they see that there's a 30% increase in chance of dementia if you use these drugs for a period of time. So that, you know, uh, where, there's a, these common drugs that are over the counter, Nexium and stuff like that. Research has shown, I mean, this is a broad research, 10,000 subjects that increases the chance of uh, dementia 30%. That's not a small number. I mean, there's a tidal wave of dementias and Alzheimer's that's about to hit or is starting to lap the shore already. I mean, just, if we, just pericardium six probably could help. Well, and all the good that we can do with helping people regulate their digestion. So in all these other years that they're living, they're living more fully, they're more well-nourished, they're, you know, when everything's working, everything works better. So I, I don't think we tapped our potential. I, I would say to people that have a caring heart and uh, want to practice a, a, a wonderful form of medicine, I would encourage them to still come into the profession. Uh, enrollments have sort of leveled out at schools now. You know, we've lost some of our wonderful schools. We have. And, you know, I, I, it seems like we're facing, we might be facing a bit of a crisis. Look, when you went through school yourself, there were no loans. You paid cash. You got out of school with, how much debt did you get out of school with? You didn't have any. I managed to get out of school without debt as well, partly because I'm anaphylactically allergic to debt, but, and I was working. But 
you know, that's a piece of the landscape now. $100,000 in debt makes it a little unattractive, I think, for a lot of people. And a case could be made it's still underpriced, our education, compared to nature. Because there's a, a bestier school here in San Diego. This tuition is significantly higher. I mean, they do have a great education, but their license is a little more amorphous. Ours is to the point, so to speak. Sure. But I mean, either of those, again, because we're not part of the mainstream. Yeah, there's not jobs waiting for people. You Many people, you have to be entrepreneurial. Well, I consider having to be entrepreneurial as a benefit, but you know, that's just because I came from a family of business people. Yeah. But um, hopefully, um, I'm very hopeful because we're very effective. And there are people that are, have great practices that are, you know, living very good lives and happy with their lives. Do you see our medicine spreading more into the mainstream? Or do you see more that it'll be as it often has been, mostly over the past few decades, people creating some kind of practice for themselves? How do you, how do you see the future panning out that way? Do you have any thoughts about it? My hope is that um, if that there will be more integrative medicine and facility uh, jobs available, or people will f- help create those. I'm not certain. Now, <clears throat> I said I'm still at Pacific Center. We have uh, 12 treatment rooms. We have eight, maybe 10 busy practitioners and four or five busy body workers. We might see uh, four or five hundred people. I don't know, maybe even of a thousand people a month, something like that. I mean, I, I see the, we still use paper charts. I see them carry them from the front to the back for the next day. Yeah, but we turn 12 rooms, you know, probably six, seven, eight times a day. So it's, that's a, you know, maybe 80, 100 people. There's a demand for us. Um, the insurance companies are, make it very unpleasant with the paperwork that you have to do. I know a lot of experienced people that go to all cash. But I remain hopeful because, you know, this medicine has survived much harder times than we have now. Yeah, point well taken. And it's had this capacity to hybridize, adapt, and be flexible to the to the context. So there is that. In, in fact, I think it might be one of the strengths of the medicine and really one of the capacities that practitioners develop within themselves as they practice it is the ability to ride the waves of change, maybe with a little, I don't know, more equanimity, but maybe just a more capacity. Yeah. I mean, I'm 40 years into a licensed practice and uh, still get a kick out of it. (laughs) It's good to get up and go to work, isn't it? Good to get up and go to work. I can't do what I used to do, you know, just three an hour, three or four people an hour, just boom, 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 boom. I don't like that. That, but I, I, but it was, you know, I had a wife and kids, and there was the demand. Sure. Well, there's a time and place for it. You know, when I look at the human lifespan, and and I, I study a little psychology as well. One of the most interesting things I find about psychology are the different developmental models, and you know, our growth from birth to death. And uh, there are certain things at certain levels of development absolutely appropriate for that level of development. But if you're still doing what you were doing a couple layers earlier, not so good. And you can't really get to the next level without having done the work, so to speak. And 
look, let's face it. As you get older and your work changes and you change with your work, maybe you don't want to see four people in an hour. You might want to see two or one, even one, because our work changes and we change and, and what's interesting to us changes. Yeah. Over the years, especially because you know, I've been trained in psychology too, and there's you know, doing nutritional counseling, what a briar patch that can be. Um, I mean, it's important, but compliance is so difficult. And a lot of times I censor, not censor myself, I hold back and try to feed it in, in increments where I think that it, it could be taken in instead of trying to overload people with too much information or too much stuff. You know what has been one of my biggest lessons in being a practitioner? Don't give people information or advice unless they ask for it. It just never has worked out for me. I, I know there's folks that are very keen on educating their patients, and maybe they're just way more skilled than me, but I found that it, unless people have come with a, a kind of an opening and an inquiry, and I want to know, or I, I need to make another step, I don't know what the step is, help me explore the next step, then, then, then we can talk about food. In my career, I've never advertised. Um, we used to be in the yellow pages, but I've always worked from, uh, <laughs> look that up, young people, the yellow pages. I always worked from referrals, either from satisfied patients or M some MDs or chiropractors I've known. And the occasional patients that would come from just a yellow page listing, it was often just out of syntony. It just, we didn't mesh. Uh, for whatever reasons, their expectations I thought would often be too much. I remember one guy was a carpenter for 30 years and had no no connective tissue left in his shoulder. And I said, uh, we probably could reduce the pain and inflammation, but it's going to take a series of treatments. He said, oh, no, I, I came for one treatment. And uh, so I said, well, good luck. Well, you know, one of the problems with acupuncture is often enough, one treatment will like really knock someone's socks off make a big dent in whatever problem they have. Not always, but often enough. And so people talk about that and then everyone thinks they should have that experience. It, it, again, it happens often enough. It might even be working against us. You know, over the years, I've known practitioners that you sign a 10, 10 treatment contract before you get started. And I just never resonated with that. I, I, it's, I, I'm open for free will. People... I'm the same way. I, I feel like the medicine should speak for itself. And if it doesn't speak to someone in that way, then man, let's see if we can find them a medicine that will speak to them, you know, pass them along to someone else. But uh, yeah, word of mouth is of course the very best way to run really any business when you come right down to it. But I would say I feel like it's absolute privilege to be a practitioner of Chinese medicine. It's such a blessing. I feel like I can do do good in the world. It's, it can be an expression of love and kindness. And uh, I try to seek equanimity within myself and in, within my patients during the treatments. And uh, it's just, it's a blessing. And uh, whatever force brought me to it, whether it was lightning or karma or past life, I don't know. But a cold day taking a pee in the outhouse, deciding I'm going to be an hacky. I bow down to the forces. <laughs> uh, it's a surprising life, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, 
Wow, Rick, thank you for this uh, trip in the way back and up to the present moment. Thank you for helping steer me along memory lane again. And, and thanks for all that you've done, man. You have helped to build a, an institution that has helped so many people to learn and, and continues to. I'm headed out to Pacific Symposium myself here, at, you know, in a little over a month. So looking forward to that. Yeah, I shall be there. Great. Do, are you going to have an exhibit or just participate? Nah, I'm just going as a civilian. Okay. Yeah. I'll recognize you then. Yeah, we'll get together. Good. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for this today. Thank you. When you think of entrepreneurs, you might think of the pantheon of today's tech bros. But really, an entrepreneur is someone who is dissatisfied with the status quo. But instead of shutting down and becoming bitter or depressed, they open up in an invigorated way to possibility. They don't take the troubles of the times with a sense of resignation. Instead, for them, it's a kind of encouragement. One thing for sure, the future is unwritten. You can use that to fuel your anxiety or to invigorate your heart and your mind. There's a famous quote attributed to Gandhi to be the change that you want to see in the world, but maybe it's more about being the change that you somehow feel drawn to. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.